Good morning. Merry Christmas. I think it's important for us to do that. You know, um, in days like this when uh, you don't have your normal people doing, you know, the normal things, they're not there for whatever reason, you have to improvise and stuff, it makes you appreciate them. But also, uh, I want to say thank you to people like Jerry and Kaylee and, and, and stuff and that uh, step up and do uh, a good job, you know, and I appreciate that. Um, and Miss Beverly playing and stuff uh, is we don't know what we do without you guys. So, um, you know, I, I think, you know, here I am filling in, you know, because we don't have a pastor right now and stuff. And, but everybody plays their part. You know, uh, and sometimes God calls us to step up, you know, to do things that we don't normally are not comfortable or whatever. But uh, nonetheless, um, he has given us the opportunity. And I think I appreciate those who who step up and, and do do what they can. Um, so, so thank you. Um, today uh, we are uh, in our. Advent, Advent calendar. We're going to be on the second week, and we're talking about the peace. Um, and this is kind of we talked about hope last week, and we're going to talk about uh, peace a little bit this week. Um, and but maybe I'll talk about it a little bit differently than uh, than you might expect. Um, but we are going to be primarily in um, Luke chapter two. Um, and so what I want to start off with today. Uh, and I was thinking about it uh, in regards to what I just said about people stepping up, you know, in times when you, you need to, when things aren't, you know, quite like they normally should be. Um, I thought of two things. Uh, one is uh, Lottie Moon, in reference to her. One of the quotes that I remember from Lottie Moon was, uh, when God guides, he always provides, you know. Uh, and there's a lot of truth to that statement. Uh, when God is truly guiding, we don't need to be fearful and, and worrisome about what is going to happen or how things are going to come about. If God is guiding it, he'll provide the ways and the means and the opportunity and everything else. Uh, we just need to be faithful to do our part. Um, and I also thought of another little story. I don't have a joke this morning, uh, but and Ben's not here anyways to listen, so he always likes the jokes. Um, but um, I thought a little story about, um, and I may have told you this before, there was a little town that had a uh, kind of backwoods preacher that, you know, wasn't very educated, but uh, loved the Lord and knew, knew God uh, really well. And, and um, a lot of people, you know, were kind of embarrassed by him and stuff. And, you know, he didn't, he talked funny and, and he didn't really, you know, uh, sound that educated and, and uh, and so people were kind of like not sure, you know, what to think about him sometimes and kind of embarrassed, you know, to for other people to see him. Well, turns out there was a prominent uh, individual in the town that died. And uh, uh, also in this town, they had this one great actor, performer. He was a great orator, very eloquent, you know, could just you know, uh, move you with his performances and the way he, the way he spoke. Um, and so when this prominent individual died, they thought, you know, well, we need to have a, a service for the whole town and stuff, but, you know, we, um, 
we definitely want you know uh, this you know prominent uh, this person that's great actor great orator speaker and stuff to come and and say something you know and and move us with his you know whatever he chooses to do and they thought well I guess we got to have the preacher <laughs> you know I mean you know we don't maybe we'll give him a little part at the end you know uh, and let him give him a few minutes or something like that. And they, it was kind of like, you know, Lincoln at his Gettysburg Address was kind of an afterthought to the real performance there, uh, supposed to be originally intended. Um, and so, anyways, they got the service going and stuff, and, and sure enough, this, this great orator gets up and he speaks, and he recites Psalms 23 by heart, you know. And very eloquent, you know, pitch-perfect tone, everything, you know, it's just... You know they're 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 listening to him and he's like oh once he finishes just like oh that was wonderful wonderful and everybody was clapping and stuff and how great that was and a little bit later um, this little old preacher gets up and everybody's kind of like you know not quite sure you know if they want to you know let him do this but they let him do it and he gets up <coughs> and he reads Psalms twenty three same passage that the orator used. But when he finishes reading, there's not a dry eye within the earshot of him. And they were so moved by what he, the way he presented it. And someone later asked, they said, what was the difference? And and someone come back and says, well, the actor, the performer, he knew the word of God. But that little preacher, he knew the God of the word. And you need to think about that a little bit. Because when we, God really gets a hold of us and speaks through us, and he's, you're an instrument through which he speaks, uh, it's a whole different ballgame than simply you know, reciting scripture or reciting things that you have learned by memory. Um, that's just food for thought. My dad says bonus. Um, someone once said, peace is that brief, glorious moment in history when everybody stands around reloading. Um, yeah, there's your joke, Dan, I guess. Uh Washington, D.C. Uh, has a large assortment of peace monuments. We build one after every war. Um, what does the Bible say about peace, though? In Matthew 10, 34, it says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Jesus said that. And ultimately, um, the end is peace with God, but often what happens in presenting the gospel is it causes just the opposite sometimes, and there's conflict. Mark 4.39 says, Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. One of those scenes that shows that God had power, Jesus. God in the flesh had power over all of nature. And one of the things he says is 
through the winds and through the sea, peace be still. Mark 9.50 says, Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Luke 1.79 says, To give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. And believe it or not, this is, as we talked about this morning, guess who that came from? That was Zachariah's prophecy in Luke chapter 1. Talking about the way of peace. Now, Jesus says something else here. He says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. That's John 14, 27. What kind of peace does God give us? Jesus provides. But his peace is eternal. So ultimately in this life, we may still have conflict, but ultimately we will have peace with God. The world can give us temporary peace, maybe, in some respect, but it never lasts. Um... I'm going to pass over a few verses, but I want to read uh, some others here. It says, Romans 8, 6 says, For to be carnally minded uh, is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. It's Romans 8, 6. You think about that for a second. You know, if you are a person that struggles with peace in your life and, and you're always kind of in turmoil and struggling and stuff, um, that's not coming from God. Okay? You need to... Re- to realize that if you have an ongoing struggle uh, and an unsettledness, a lack of peace in your life, that what you're doing is you're allowing things that are not of God to reign in your heart and mind, uh, and you need to do some evaluation and get things in proper perspective. Um, let me see. I have a lot I want to skip over, but uh, or that I don't want to skip over, but I have to. Um, you know, I was just looking at this just now. Um, this is a um, a um, memorial card for the service that I went to just a couple days ago um, for a friend of mine that passed away unexpectedly. Uh, his name was Dan Workman. Um, he was not much older than I am now. And it was, uh, he passed away from cancer. Uh, he'd been battling for four years. Um, but there was a piece about Dan that I always liked. And uh, he always spoke to me. Um, and uh, he used to wish me happy birthday in Greek. And he would send me a text or a, a Facebook thing because he knew I could read it in Greek. And then I'd respond back to him that way. And he says, I knew you, could, I knew you, what, I, you knew what I was saying. You know? Um, but, um, yeah, but I have a piece about Dan because I know his relationship with the Lord and how strong it was. And uh, I tell you, when it comes to losing our loved ones and those close to us and, and stuff, that makes all the difference in the world. Um, you can have a piece about, about them, um, even though they're not with you anymore. Um, that only comes from God. Um, it doesn't come from anybody else. And in fact, you have other passages like 1 Corinthians 14, 33, which says, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, 
I like that. 1 Corinthians 14.33. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. That's just the first phrase, but I like it. Galatians 5.22 gives us the fruit of the Spirit. And in that we find peace, right? It says love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against us there is no law, right? Why? Because those are things of God. They come from truth. They come from what is right and good. Um, then there's Philippians 4, 7. It says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Right? Think about that for a second. The peace that only come from God. As I told you today, if you're struggling with an unsettledness in your heart and mind and your life, uh, you need to realize that that unsettledness is not coming from God. Okay? Um, because when you understand things as God does and you walk according to his will, then there will be a peace about things for in your life that sometimes you can't quite explain. Like it says in Philippians 4, surpasses all understanding. I don't quite fully understand how this is, but nonetheless... There's a piece about it. Um, and it goes back to what Lottie Moon says, when God guides, he always provides. You know, I think she had a piece about things, uh, knowing that God would provide what they needed when they needed it. Um, then I like this, 2 Timothy 2.22 says, Flee also youthful lust, but what? Pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. And Hebrews 12, 14 says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. In other words, you have to make an effort, okay? This is not something I sit back and it just kind of, you know, um, it's like the old story that, that I can put the Bible, I don't want to put my Bible, it's too big, uh, but I put my Bible on my head, and I'm not going to get it by osmosis. You know, it's not going to permeate through the paper into my brain and somehow translate and get into my heart that way, okay? You know osmosis. He's the long-lost brother of Moses, right? But, uh, um, but we have to pursue peace, right? We have to go after it, okay? Um, it doesn't. It's, it's not going to just happen sitting back. Um, and then, in there, then, in, then there's the uh, in the last book of the Bible, Revelation six four says another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to what take peace from the earth. You know, we've been talking. I've been talking a lot about prophecy and stuff and everything, but there's some prophecies that are not necessarily really good, but are still told that one day these things will take place. And that one day God will remove some of those good things. And when God takes his church out and takes the spirit of God away from, from the presence of, of it as we know today, then there's going to be a lack of peace and a turmoil in the world that it has never known before. And what Christ is saying to you now is, you know, what I'm offering to you right now is a peace not like the world offers, but it's an eternal peace, you know. Um, then there's the story uh, you know, and I, I don't, I, I, 
I uh, had mentioned it to Art earlier this week, but I didn't know if he wanted to put it in the music. But uh, we know this, the story behind the song, It Is Well With My Soul. And we, we have Horatio Spafford, uh, who is a businessman in Chicago, and he sent his wife and three daughters uh, on a cruise or ship to Europe uh, while he stayed back for whatever reason I don't remember. Um, and he intended to join them later. Now, en route, there was a storm that took place, and uh, the ship uh, went down, and the three daughters, uh, three, his three daughters were drowned. Only his wife was saved. And that's what she messaged back to him, uh, said, all of our daughters have been lost, only I have been saved. He took the next ship he could and goes to the same location, Okay, and the captain of the ship told him, so as best we know, this is the location of where uh, the ship went down and where your daughters drowned. Um, and it was there on that deck of that ship that he wrote these words. He says, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well my soul. That kind of peace only comes from God. It does not come from man. Um, and it doesn't come from Horatio Spafford himself. It comes from the peace that God had given him in the loss of his daughters to be able to say something like that. Um, and you know, that's one of the reasons why I like some of the hymns um, because there's messages behind these stories, these these songs uh, that we um, are much more impactful if we understand them. But Luke 2.14, getting back to our particular passage, says, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Now, of course, that should probably be understood a little bit more as peace toward men on whom God's sovereign uh, pleasure rests, as uh, John MacArthur says. Um, but nonetheless, uh, it is a peace uh, that, that came with the coming of our uh, Savior the first time, when he was born as a baby. Now, I'm going to switch gears a little bit, and I want to talk to you about um, Christ and the amazing child that he was. But to start with that, I'm going to borrow some uh, stories that I like. Um, you remember those, you've seen those bumper stickers that some people put of their kids, you know, my kid's an honor roll student, you know, and stuff and everything, and how great they are. Well, after I read these, you may want to take that bumper sticker off, uh, because um, I want to read you a few examples of some truly amazing children. Um, this one person named Jean Louise Cardiac uh, from the 18th century was born in France, and he was known as the Wonder Child. Gene could recite the alphabet when he was three months old. Uh, at age four, he could not only read Latin, but translated it into English and French. He read Greek and Hebrew and pro was proficient in, in subjects as, such, 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 such subjects as arithmetic, history, geography, and genealogies by the time he was six years old. He died in Paris when he was seven. And then there was Christian Frederick Heineken, 
He was known throughout Europe as the infant of Lübeck after his birthplace in Germany. In addition to an astounding faculty for numbers, a little Christian reportedly knew all the principal events in the Bible, uh, related in the Bible by the time he was one. At three, think about that, man. At three, he was conversant with world history, geography, Latin, and French. And in 1724, the king of Den- Denmark sent for him to confirm these stories of the child's extraordinary abilities. Shortly after his stay in Copenhagen, little Christian became ill and died at the age of four. Um, I don't know, it's like some of these poor children, you know, they're so bright, but they die at such a, uh, an early age. And then there was Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, maybe the most uh, prodigious of all uh, child prodigies. Mozart was born in Salzburg, Austria. At four, he became he began music lessons with his violinist father. At five, he composed uh, minuets. At six, he was a virtuoso on the violin, and I can't even pronounce this instrument that he played, but it is, uh, with his older sister, creating a sensation in European courts with his phenomenal ability to sight-read music and improvise at age six. He wrote his first symphony at age eight. At 11, forced to compose in solitary confinement for the suspicious Archbishop of Salzburg, he passed the test and was offered the salary, uh, salary job of uh, city concertmaster at age 11. At 12, he wrote two operas and a mass. His reputation grew over the years. His operas, concertos, and symphonies of the highest order came from his pen. Today, he's still regarded as one of the world's supreme geniuses. And then there was John Stuart Mill. He was often called a manufactured genius. He was the product of an educational experiment that reads like a record of medieval torture. His irritable father was a historian and philosopher named James Mill. He was forced, uh, he forced his son to learn Greek at age three, history at age four, Latin, geometry, and algebra by age eight. By 12, he had read Virgil, Horace, Ovid, Terence, Cicero, Homer, Sophocles, uh, and I'm just going on, there's just so too many philosophers, all in Greek, okay? His father required him to write English, write, uh, English verse and educate his younger siblings. John Stuart Mill eventually became a world-renowned philosopher. And then there was, also living uh, on into the beginning of the 20th century, a man named Truman Henry Safford, the son of a Vermont farmer. Uh, he showed his uh, age of three when his parents amused themselves with his calculating powers. At seven, he studied algebra and geometry. At nine, he constructed and published an almanac. At 10, he originated a new rule for obtaining moon risings and settings in one quarter of of the time of previous methods. At the age of 10, he was asked to square the number that is to multiply multiply it by itself, the number of 365, about six times, they write 365 about six times across. Uh, I can't even begin to figure out how big that is. Multiplied by itself, he gave the correct answer in less than a minute. Um, and obviously, very smart. He graduated from Harvard at age 18. 
And the joke is, uh, by the way, are you thinking of removing your bumper sticker uh, in your honor roll student? <laughs> but amazing as those child children were, they all fade into foolishness compared to one 12-year-old boy named Jesus. And I put the child who knew he was God. Luke wants us to know that uh, that not just that the child was God, but that he understood that he was God. Because there was going to be some accusations later on that were made, and and we needed to understand that this is not something that he just assumed from some type of pressure outside of himself, but that he understood who he was. And you also need to keep in mind, of all the events that could have been recorded, now the apocryphal lists different events, but from his birth till the time he's 30 years old and his ministry begins, there's only one event recorded in Scripture. So that event must be pretty important. So we're going to take a look at that a little bit as we go through here. In um, verses 39 through 52, at the end of uh, chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, the only incident ever recorded in the first 30 years of Jesus' life and the only words that Jesus has ever recorded to have said in those 30, 30 years, and it all happens in this one particular passage. And we need to hear it from the child himself because the question comes is, is there something that people were forcing on him? Or is there something that is being pressed on him? Is he getting some kind of pressure some, from some other source because of the messianic expectations that were rampant throughout the day? Or was this his true identity? It is critical to understand that, his true, uh, that this is his true identity, identity, and that's why the remarkable incident at the age of 12 is recorded for us, so it leaves absolutely no question as to the understanding of Jesus with regard to his uh, true identity. Now, we're going to kind of go through starting back in verse 21 of Luke chapter 2. Okay? And it says, And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, uh, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now, understand Mary and Joseph were doing everything in accordance with the law, okay? And so it was customary when the child, was, especially a son, was eight days old to be circumcised and on that day to be named, given his name, okay? And normally the pressure was that you name the child after his father, okay? And in this case it would have been Joseph. But what did they do? They named him Jesus, and then verse 22 says, When the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him to Joseph to present him to the Lord. They performed everything according to the law. And after a Jewish woman gave birth to a male child, she was to go 40 days later to the temple to make a purification sacrifice. Okay? So she's doing exactly what she's supposed to do. Okay? Uh, to present him to the Lord. Okay, this was according to the law of Moses, and they were following that exactly as they ought to. Verse 23 says, As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy. Old Testament instruction, going all the way back to Exodus and Numbers, had given this instruction 
of what to do. And then verse 24 says, And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. Now, why did they offer that? Not a lamb? Because they, that's all they had the money for, right? And if you didn't have the money to, to purchase the lamb, you got two turtle doves or two, two pigeons, uh, and you offered those as a sacrifice. Now, look in your Bibles at Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 25. And we're going to read this, and then I'll come out, comment on some of these verses. And it says, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this was a man who was just and devout, waiting for the what? The consolation of Israel. Okay? And that was a messianic title. Okay? Um, and he says, And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and Mary marveled at all those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now, I don't know, I would have liked to have been there to see that, you know, can I mean, just imagine what's going through Mary and Joseph's mind when they're seeing all this taking place. But isn't it interesting, we kind of, kind of touched on it in the Sunday school a little bit, that only a handful of people really recognized what was taking place. You know, I mean, here we have just two people, we'll, have, we'll read Anna here in just a minute, uh, what she did. But Simeon, you know, come, they come in, Mary and Joseph come into the temple following the letter of the law, custom of Moses, 40 days of purification, and she's here to offer her sacrifice, and just the measly turtle doves and pigeons, whatever she had, that's all they could afford, and stuff. And then Simeon comes up to them and takes Jesus in his hand, arms, you know, and holds the child up, basically, and says all this. You can imagine what's going through Mary and Joseph's mind when all this is taking place. And, you know, some of the things that he says... Like in verse 30, he says, uh, your salvation, um, my eyes have seen your salvation. You know, here is the child. This is the Messiah that we've been waiting for for centuries. That's been prophesied centuries ago. We, we've so been looking for and longing for. And here he is holding him in his hands at this mo moment in time. Um I, I still, you know, it's still hard to see, you know, and think of Jesus as a little child like that. But, but nonetheless, that's the way it was. And then in verse 31 and 32, and who else but a Gentile to write this, you know, mentions that the salvation is to what? All people, right? 
And he mentions the Gentiles, not just Israel, to the Jews too, but but to the Gentiles, to Israel, to the all people, right? He's, a, he's the Savior, not just for the Jews. He's the Savior of the world, right? And then he says those things like he's destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Um, and then he says to Mary, he says, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. You know, I've often thought about what Mary mother of Jesus, you know, in, in his human uh, aspect of, of life, must have went through and felt, you know, and uh, and we'll look at this instance here in a little bit that's mentioned and how her response is and stuff, um, but, but just think about that for a little bit of what she was going through. Let's look on a little bit further, and, and uh, verse 36 of Luke 2 says, says, now there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanu, of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years, uh, basically 84-year-old woman, okay, uh, even though it's kind of worded kind of funny to me, but uh, who did not depart from the temple. And apparently she lived at the temple. Um, and um, there was in the outer courts means to do that. Uh, and in this case, because of her situation, that's where she lived. But she served God with fastings and prayers night and day, and coming in that instant, she instant, okay? Um, this reads like Mark almost. When things happen, they happen immediately. Uh, but in coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for the redemption in Jerusalem. Um, you know, you think about that for a second. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you've uh, had some people in your life uh, that are just great witnesses to the Lord, but, you know, I mean, they turn around and, and somehow they can just turn everything into an, an opportunity to witness. Um, I wish I was a little better at that than, 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 uh, than I am, but, uh, but, but you know, it, it, I can see Anna just, you know, people coming in and she's going, do you know, do you know, you know. Uh, it's not Mary, did you know? It's Mary, do you know who is here, you know? And do you know that all what we've been waiting for all this time is now present, you know? And the salvation of Israel is here. And uh, not only of Israel, but of all Gentiles um, of the world. Um, and then verse 39 says, so when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, um, they returned to Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. Now, there's something that happens, though, here that Luke does, and you have to look at maybe why he does. But what happens here in this, between this presentation, this sacrifice that's taking place, to the time they returned to Galilee, there was a couple of important events, two important events that took place between those things, right? Because they didn't just do this, and then all of a sudden they went back to Galilee, to Nazareth, right? Well, what else happens in the meantime, in between those times, between this purification sacrifice and going to Nazareth? Well, they visited the wise men. And the reason one of the reasons why we know that the wise men took place after this is because what they offered for the sacrifice. 
Remember when the wise men came, what did they do? They offered them gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Basically gave them quite a bit of, of wealth there just in those gifts to Joseph and Mary. It was presented to Jesus, but as a child, his parents would have taken care of that. And they would have had plenty to have offered a lamb if they had had that. So one of the things it says is that this took place. And we also know that it says that the wise men visit them in their house. So at the point, some point in time, after Jesus' birth, after this purification service, or whenever, some maybe during that time, they found a place to stay. Okay, And the wise men came and visited them. Visited them. But we also know what other incident that took place. What did Herod do? Remember when the wise man came? He issued a decree to kill all the male children from Bethlehem two years, two years and younger. He wasn't sure exactly how old he was at that time. And, and, but he knew it was less than two years. right? So he orders that to take place. And we also know what else took place. But that they flew, fled, fled to Egypt. Right? Okay? All of that occurs between the time of purification of the temple and the time they return uh, to Galilee, to Nazareth. Okay? So now we pick up in verse 40. And verse 40 says, The child continued to grow. And this is where we begin to focus on the life of the child who was God. And not only was God, but knew he was God. And this is what we'll look at in this scene, okay? Um, but in verse 40, it says, The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And notice here in verse 41, it says, His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover, okay? So it doesn't say that they took Jesus every year, or that Jesus went every year. Uh, but And I think... Probably because it was customary, if you look at verse 42, it says, And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. Uh, you know, when a, a Jewish boy turned 13, he has his bar mitzvah, he's declared a man, you know, and, and ushered in um, all the things that come with it. He's declared a son of the commandment. Uh, and most Jewish boys typically celebrated their first Passover feast at age 12, okay? So I think what they're doing is that, is that this was the first time they took Jesus with them uh, to, uh, to the Passover. So this is his first time, a year before he is, you know, a son of the commandment and to follow. And that's why it lists this particular event. Um, and... So this would have been his first feast. Now, interestingly enough, when you look in verse 43, it says, When they had finished the days as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother did not know it. Okay. Now, I think you have to be careful about how you read that. This is not a mischievous boy who's trying to you know, hide from his parents and do things that he shouldn't or get away with something. Whatever, this is God in the flesh who is now coming to this point that he is going to start showing elements of who he really is and what his calling is to be. Okay? 
Um, and so he lingers back, and unlike, and that's one reason why I say sometimes you have in apocryphal books where it mentions uh, Jesus as a boy doing supernatural, miraculous things, um, and some really uh, fanciful tales that I've seen, um, that is not what Scripture, I think, wants to present at all uh, about Jesus, and or that is necessarily true of who he was. Uh, scripture presents Jesus as a typical boy in a typical family. Okay, um, he was not being disobedient nor mischievous. His parents made a presumption that he was a mistaken presumption that he was with the caravan of people that were coming. It would have been fam many family and friends and relatives and stuff that would have been traveling together for safety's sake, you know. Uh, and so it'd been easy to. You can understand it from Mary and Joseph's perspective to assume that he was with the caravan, but he hadn't, right? And it's also uh, uh, to think that when they find Jesus, uh, well, we'll look at it in a second, but what did Jesus do? He went to a public place in place of trusted individuals where his parents most likely should have recognized where to go to find him, okay? Um, and so you see some some things here uh, that that, um, that the way it presents it, you need to make sure you read a little bit closer. But verse 44 says, but suppose, supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. Um, and it says they supposed him to be in the company, okay? Most likely, like I said, hundreds of people traveling together um, and then verses 45 and 46 says, So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple. Now, first of all, it says, Sitting in the midst of teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. Now there's some things I want to point out about that. One, it wasn't that they took three days to find him. It was that they took a day's journey to go away, a day's journey to get back, and that third day, then they found him, okay? Um, and, uh, and so also notice that it says here that Jesus was both listening and asking questions at 12 years old. It doesn't say he was teaching them. He wasn't, you know, kind of assuming, well, I'm God, so listen to me type of thing. Um, but he was, he was listening to them. You know, uh, and, and as it says in his humanity, he was learning. He was also asking questions and things like that. He was utterly respectful, but his questions had to have shown a wisdom that brought some shame uh, to the teachers because they wouldn't have fully known how to under understand it. Because why? Because he was God in the flesh. He was espousing questions that if they understood the truth and the way it really was, was then they would have understood who he was, uh, but they didn't. And it goes on in verse 47, it says, And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. Uh, that would be a fun lesson to be on, right? Uh, just to see this 12-year-old boy and the way he answered and the questions that he asked, and you're like, Oof, I don't know. Um, but it goes on and it says, so when they saw him, talking about Mary and Joseph, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. 
right? Why have you done this to us? Mary's words convey a tone of exasperation and rebuke. Probably the first time Jesus had ever heard such a tone from his mother, you know? Uh, but misplaced in this case, he was not hiding it from them. He was not trying to defy them, you know? He had done what any child would have uh, left behind would have done. He went to a safe place, a public place, in the presence of a trusted adult where his parents could be expected to come looking for him. Okay? And he was simply taking advantage of the moment and asking questions and listening uh, to religious leaders. And he goes on and he says to them, verse 49, he says, why do you seek me? Uh, did, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Now his reply is in no sense insolent. It's not some kind of sarcastic little remark like a typical teenager would give. Um, he was genuinely amazed that they had trouble, so much trouble figuring out why, where he would be, you know. Um, and <clears throat> it also shows that he had a clear consciousness of his true identity and his mission. Um, there have been critics who have said um, that Jesus, um, you know, didn't know who he was. He was just a man. And that when he got to age 30, he began to realize all the messianic expectations and then he kind of assumed that role. Um, but we don't see that here, right? Um, he says right here in this one scene at 12 years old, he, re he reveals that he is fully aware of who he is and what his mission is, right? He says, do you not know that I must be about my father's business, right? And he, he, it's, it's, it's as if he's taking that first step into revealing who he is and what he's come to do. But of course, in verse, 15, in verse 50, Mary and Joseph didn't quite understand that yet, right? And then in verse 51 and 52, it says, Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them, but his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. This is all we know about Jesus' life from his 40 day of purification sacrifice after his birth to the time he's 30 years old and begins his ministry, okay? 30 years of his life are going to pass before us and basically in two verses, verse 40 and verse 52, you have that within that there's this incident of when he's 12 years old. It's very important to understand that if they put this one incident in, that it's pretty important, pretty monumental. And it goes on and it says, like I said, in verses 51 and 52, that the child grew and he was, it says, um, he grew in a normal physical manner. Um, he, uh, he grew as a child, grows in a manner, but that's unique. He would have not had a sin nature. And I, I, I always say, I think that's one reason why he was able to, to endure and still be cognizant of what was happening and conscious when he was on the cross because of who he was and because of his physical nature would have been like God had originally created Adam, you know, without a sin nature. Uh, and so he would have been able to endure more than what the average person would have been able to take place because of who he was. 
and he was beaten and tortured before he was even put on the cross, and yet he's still cognizant of what's taking place when he's on the cross. Uh, his growth was never hindered, never impaired, never restricted, never affected by sin. So he developed a certain kind of physical strength uh, and physical um, ability that would have been unique. Uh, one of the things that we see through scriptures that he could walk for miles um, with the strength to do that and still have a sleepless night in prayer, you know, and still be able to be okay the next day. Um, in this one incident, though, this one scene that we see at age 12, uh, we see Jesus on the brink of adulthood, fully conscious of his identity, fully conscious of his mission, and fully conscious, you think about for a second, one of the things he would have seen at that Passover feast is what? The sacrifice of, of the lamb. And understanding that one day he would be the lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. He would be that sacrifice. You know, interesting that he comes on this particular time. You know, and I think it was the one time that he came at that age. First time he came. So, you know, you look at that and you, you think, God who came in the flesh realized who he was and what his mission was. And it says in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, glory to God in the highest and what? On earth, peace and goodwill toward men. Right? What he brought. Now, the peace that he brought, like I said, initially might have brought conflict among many and divided families because some believed, some didn't. Even Jesus' own family didn't believe him until after his death and resurrection. Right? Um... But nonetheless, it's a peace that surpasses all understanding. As you think about that this week, uh, remember who Jesus is and what he came to do. And the peace that he can provide you and he offers you. And ask yourself the question, am I a person that lives with that peace in my heart? Does it rule and reign in me? If you have things that you're struggling with and, and not at ease, there's, a, there's questions you need to ask yourself. And go back to those verses that I read about peace and see if that is something that you need to be working on in your life. Let's stand.